This is Catalog and Cocktails. Presented by Data.World. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Catalog and Cocktails. It's your honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management presented by Data.World with tasty beverages in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy over at Data.World, joined by Juan Cicada. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada, principal scientist here at Data.World. And Wednesday, middle of the week, end of the day, towards the end of the day, and time to take that break and chat about data. And today we are going to chat about another topic that we haven't had a lot of, I don't think we've had any conversation about. I'm really excited that we're, we are really making sure that we're touching on so many different topics. It's time. And that topic is about privacy. And today we have Patricia Thane, who's the CEO from Private AI, who's going to join us. Patricia, how are you doing? Welcome. Doing great. Thanks. How are you both doing? Fantastic. Doing excellent. We we love talking about data. We love drinking some drinks, and we love having excellent guests like yourself. Love talking about data with great people. So very excited to be here. So let's kick it off. What are we drinking and what are we toasting for today? Patricia. Well, um, the beginning of summer, sort of soon. Very excited about hot weather being from Canada. <laughs> so when does hot weather actually start in Canada? And what does hot actually mean for you? It really depends. Right now it's above zero degrees, so it's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you can wear your medium coat instead of your heavy coat. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how, about, how, about, how about you, Tim? What are you drinking? What are you toasting for? Um, so I'm drinking a, um, I'm, I'm kind of keeping to my theme from last week of Manhattan derivatives, and I am drinking a rye revolver. It's got two ounces of rye and half an ounce of coffee liqueur, plus some bitters. Uh, and I wasn't sure what it was going to taste like. It tastes pretty good. Um, so happy about that. And I am going to cheers to to kids. My four-year-old is getting older and getting smarter, and she surprises me every day, and she's a delight. So, to kids. Awesome. I'm having, I guess, the, the it's a Oaxaca old-fashioned, just mezcal, some agave bitters. No, no, no orange peel, but still tastes good. And I'm going to, I'm going to cheers to the summer because it is, it's beginning of March here, and well, spring right here, but uh, South by Southwest is starting on friday and usually in austin south by is is that's the week where it's just the best perfect weather and i'm just super excited that go hang out mm -hmm. so hey cheers to to weather and to kids cheers. cheers so we have our our funny warm-up question today which is uh which company's privacy policy is required reading for insomniacs mm, that is a great question so i would say probably a big cloud provider's privacy policy because they hold a lot of your data. A lot of your customer's data goes there. You might be using their services, sending your data to a third party. Might not necessarily have looked into that privacy policy that deeply and whether it, it uh, you know, complies with your own contracts. Hmm. I That's wonder how many people actually answer. have, yeah. Who's actually, I, my answer is, I think all of them, I, I'm actually curious how many people actually read them like mm -hmm. you know, just going through the cookies and like except i'm now trying trying to get better i like i'm not going to accept all the cookies and all that stuff but then it's like i got two seconds to go look at this page and like i'll just screw it just click on that but yeah it's so easy that, to just, it's so easy to just fast forward through it right and um you know i was thinking about this question and i was thinking well you know maybe facebook or something like that you know i bet they're probably on version 500 of their privacy policy but you know actually just a thought came across my mind have you ever looked at um uh, Apple's privacy policy, like it's actually like pretty like nicely written, kind of plain Englishy and and like well designed, like you would expect Apple things to be. So I don't know, mm. that's kind of a cool thing to look at. That is cool. I also like the way that Google kind of designs their privacy questionnaire. That's fairly nicely designed. Hmm. But one trick that I use for looking at privacy policies is just Control F for data. That way you, you skip a lot of the mud jumble and you just get to the sweet stuff of what, what are they doing with your data. Oh, man. Uh, we just got our first uh, hot take or hot tip right here. <laughs> hey, listeners, right. you just got your first hot tip. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this is a good segue into, into our discussion here. So, all right, let's kick it off. So, Patricia, honest, no BS. And I think this was something that came up last week, too. And I'm like, 
we last week we spoke about streaming, which was something that I particularly don't know much about. And I want to kind of take advantage of these sessions for me to learn. And I'm really not well versed at all about security and privacy. So honest, no BS. What do we mean by security and privacy? Because I know that a lot of people use them interchangeably. I use them interchangeably and I, uh, that's not correct. So honest, no BS. What is security? What is privacy? Just let's kick it off with that. Okay, sure. So privacy is all about giving the user control over their data. So what happens to their data, whether or not it could be deleted, what processes, you know, it's about giving the user control. And security is about keeping that data safe from unwanted eyes, right? So if you don't have security, there's no way you're going to have privacy. But the nice thing about privacy is that it allows you to recognize what kind of data you hold in a much more meticulous way, how it associates with particular individuals. And that in turn allows you to have better security because you've got a better understanding of your systems. Hmm. So you, they, they both complement each other. Can't really have privacy without security. Um, and uh, that, that that's a really clean and, and useful way to kind of articulate those two things. Glad you so, think so. so. So, okay, so here the question is, why are we? I, I'm going to start from the from the position that how how excited are people about privacy? Like, is this something that we that we we're seeing people paying attention to, or kind of, or they think they're paying attention to it, but they're not? Like, where is the state of this right now? Mm, okay, so I think there's a misconception that people don't care about privacy, and you know. For a long time, it might have been the case that they didn't, or at least didn't pay as much attention, not so much that they didn't care about privacy. If given the option between two identical services, the person would likely choose the one that preserves their privacy. But I think the reason that privacy became boring is because of things like privacy policies. That's what you associate it with, you know? But more recently, with all of the privacy-enhancing technologies that are coming out, it's I think there's a chance that it's going to become more and more like cryptography, where it becomes this cool mythical thing that you start associating with, you know, uh, decrypting uh, interesting messages and uh, protecting yourself during wartime, that kind of thing. Uh, with it's it's really about that association with boring, boring things that uh, people stop started to not pretend that they don't care about privacy or feel like they don't care about privacy. That's interesting. I mean, that's, so this is a little bit from the, the end user perspective, right? So like are you know, is, is this similar to cryptography? Like people got excited about blockchain and some of the technology aspects. Are there some technology aspects about it that you think are going to make people be like, Ooh, wow, this is interesting. Or maybe they'll have power that they haven't had before. Yeah, for sure. So you know, one one big part about privacy is anonymization and re-identification risk. And you th if you think about what that means, that's that's a puzzle. Can you re-identify an individual when you remove these features? When you remove, you know, their religion, their social security number? Um, how do you associate those with statistics? That becomes kind of interesting when you start looking at it as a game, right? Similar with number theory. It's cryptography can become a game. Okay. So, so, so th this is interesting how we, how do we start getting privacy more? Um, in, I mean, it's not, it's, 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 it's gotten boring, but we want to get it more interesting to folks. People get it uh, more interesting. I see this as kind of a two perspective, like one as a, as a general consumer, right? I'm like on, I'm, I just, I'm on the web and doing things, but also we have to go see it from a perspective as building tools and, and managing that data, right? So I think, is it, a, is it about the, I mean, the, the tool, the tool folks are already, I would assume that they need to go take uh, part of privacy, regardless if they find it cool or not, they just have to go deal with that. Mm -hmm. And then are, is there something that they can and should be doing to make it better or to make it more interesting for the consumers or it's really they just have to do the bare minimum and that's it and it's up to more of the consumers who are like need to go ask for that stuff mm, yeah great question so 
I think privacy in itself is already a competitive advantage. If you look at things like DuckDuckGo, for example, whose growth is going crazy, or Signal, uh, and if you look at how quickly Facebook's stocks tanked uh, recently, mostly because of privacy, there is that competitive advantage, advantage in the nature of it. But if you want the consumer to really get excited about your technology, maybe you can explain your technology to the consumer in a cool way, right? So what is happening with their data? One example is one of our customers, so people get very excited about our web demo uh, at Private AI. Um, and one of our customers asked for um, integrating that web demo into their website so that they can show their customers what's happening with their data. I think things like that could be really interesting. Like if you're using differential privacy, is there a way you could show the users live what happens to the results of the queries to a database, for example? So you're saying companies could be doing more than simply kind of just saying like, yeah, we check all the boxes or like, yes, we are secure, right? Mm -hmm. um, or yes, we respect your privacy, but rather actually show off more the ways in which they are doing that. Right. Yeah. Actually showing sort of the things that they're doing with your data to make sure that it's protected so that, you know, when they're asking you to accept cookies and let them use your information for all sorts of things that you actually feel like they're doing a, a unique job of protecting it. Exactly. Showing you your own data and what what they're seeing on their end. Hmm. So could, how, how do we how do you characterize different aspects, different types of privacy? I mean, I mean, we're using the word privacy here very generally kind of overarching, but let's get more specific into what this actually, I mean, how, how can we categorize this, different categories of privacy? Hmm, different categories of privacy. And I, I don't know if that's an adequate question. I'm just throwing, I mean, I'm thinking about this. Like, is there about, um, you're, you're using the data, right? And we're being proud with your data, but, but is it with respect to like, um, how much time we're using this data for, or where, or where, where are we using this data for, or for, or for what type of use cases we're using your data? Like, what are those aspects that we should be that that a, a, a consumer should be thinking about, and yeah. that they're probably most concerned about, right? Yeah, great question. So, hmm, a lot of. Uh, so we can look at the privacy regulations for guidance here. Uh, a lot of them will state, you know, how, are you collecting only the necessary information? So data minimization is a core concept. Uh, and others will have the right to be forgotten, um, the right to access your information. Um, and these are all things that consumers should be aware of when they are in the right regions that have these data protection regulations. Uh, or, you know, when they're in regions where these data protections re regulations don't exist and maybe they want to uh, get their government to pass them. Um, but I think if you think about categories of privacy, maybe, maybe we could turn to cryptography again there. So it's uncommon to think of it as categories of privacy, but we can maybe think of it as threat models. So what kind of attackers or what kind of threats are you concerned about with regards to this data? Can you, are you concerned about the company seeing it? Are you concerned about a, a third party attacker seeing it, about that data being leaked? Are you concerned about you know, it being misused, it being used for processes you don't approve of, it being stored for too long? These are all pretty interesting questions to think about. Do you, so, um, Oh, go ahead, Juan. No, no, you go, you go, Tim. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you feel like companies are asking these questions uh, to a sufficient level? Hmm. Well, they were being forced to in some cases because of data protection regulations. Are they asking it to a sufficient level? Mm. I think it depends on the size of the company and on whether they have the resources to do it. But for example, for a few startups coming up, um, I, I'm biased because of the people that we end up getting in touch with tend to care about privacy. Uh, but a lot of startups are asking the question of how can I make sure that our customers are comfortable sharing their data with us? How can I make sure that we're being safe? And if we get a hacked, these people are also going to be, uh, are, are not going to be damaged, right? Um, 
And I think as we see more leaks, like there was a leak recently with a bunch of data from mm, a mental health app. I don't know if you heard about that. No, and I don't think so. So it was, it was actually a ransomware attack. And people in this mental health app uh, who are using this mental health app got pinged uh, saying, give us this or we will release this information about you. Here's your social security number. Here's this other private information from you that as proof that we got your data. So if you think about privacy from the very beginning um, and you minimize the amount of data that you're collecting about a particular individual, if you do go into a situation like this, it is going to be much, much safer for the individuals that whose data got leaked. All right. So th th this is an interesting point to start thinking about how do you start attaching or what are the, what are the different, um, um, call it what grades of privacy that you should be having? I don't know if that's the right kind of terminology here, but like you said, like minimization, like how much data do I want to be able to, to maintain mm -hmm. it for so long? Because depending on how you're establishing that for the data that you're managing, um, you can probably avoid these types of things, right? Or, or, or mm -hmm. you have less, less data, so less, less risk to go do that. So one of the topics that we hear that, that we talk all the time, and this is like the big, big trend across the entire industry is, is treating data as a product and these data and, and bringing this product thinking into data. And in, in the same way, when I, I always say like thinking about data as a product is like buying any product on, on Amazon or whatever. And when you buy things, like you always have almost like security types of like, well, make sure you don't, this is a plastic bag. Don't put it around three-year-olds and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So this is something when we start thinking about data as a product, mm -hmm. what are the privacy aspects that we really need to start naturally thinking about data products? Um I would love to kind of like, let's spend some time here brainstorming because Tim and I have been working on this framework. We're calling the A, the ABCDE framework, just makes it cute, right? What, uh, you, data products need to have accountability, need to have boundaries, yeah. contracts and expectations. Who are the downstream consumers and what is that explicit knowledge? But then like I think about privacy and security, that's something that should probably go around. What is a contract around this, the, 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 this, uh, this data product? All right, I'm, I'm starting to rant here, but I'd love to kind of throw it back to you, but it's just like, when we think about data products, what is your perspective of bringing in the privacy and security with respect to data products? Perspective of bringing the privacy and security with respect to data products. That's, I mean, it has to be done from the very beginning. That's the concept of privacy by design, right? By Ann Very important uh, to think it through from the start. And I, just to, to turn it back a bit, you said, uh, the privacy grade, right? Just because that's not how people talk about it doesn't mean it shouldn't be, right? This is a brand new field uh, or a blooming field, if you will. And I think that's a very interesting concept. Why not associate a privacy grade to what a company is doing with your data? That would make things easier for individuals to be able to assess. Is this privacy policy actually protecting us? Yeah, would it's you get an... Do you get an A or an F on, on privacy? I mean, I mean, yeah. thinking about it as a as as a as a data product, right? I mean, again, imagine you're buying something on Amazon, you get the stars on the rating. Like you can you know what the again, very loosely here, what is the privacy and security of this? And again, I'm again you see how I'm using privacy right. and security here kind of interchangeably. So apologies for that. But okay, my point that what is how are we going to grade this? What is what is it consumers yeah. you know, now we're going to consume data? It's like this is this is what the privacy that that we're having, but also if you're going to consume this, like we're passing on this responsibility to you, and you also need to, like that's the contract. Like if you're right. going to go use this, you also need to be responsible for this, and we need to also keep managing who's the responsibility. So th this this is something that I think that we're not having this conversation, and we really need to have this more and more because when we talk about data products, a lot of people are like, well, here's the data. I'm like. Well, there's more to the data. What does this data mean? Here's this metadata. Here's this schema. But it's but as you just said, privacy should be done from the beginning. So we we need to be thinking about the privacy with respect to the data from the beginning. And this is a very important takeaway I'm having right now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to go back to your question about how to think about security and privacy uh, for data products. So, I mean, what we're used to thinking about 
uh, as companies is encryption at rest, encryption in transit. But then the big question that's remained is when you need to process that data, what are you going to do? Because that's when it's most at risk, right? So it's thinking about how to minimize the amount of personal information so that at that stage, when it's being processed, that data is protected. You know, this, yeah, this is an interesting, it's, it's opening up a lot of thoughts. And like one of them is around uh, consented use. Mm -hmm. And obviously use cases are really important to like, how are you supposed to use this data? Um, and I, I at least know that, you know, in, in a lot of companies that I see, they don't necessarily track consented use that well. I mean, yeah, sure. Like you're getting end user consents, right? On When they sign up, they're like, yeah, you know, contact me for marketing purposes. Like, yes, yeah, so you can use my information for more personalized experiences, right? That's like the, the good turn of phrase right now, right? Um, mm -hmm. But then like from the data professional standpoint, right? We have a lot of listeners that are data people. Um, I tell you what, there's no column in that data warehouse for that table that is consented uses. So like... I don't know what, you know, is that, is that a problem when it comes to data products or, or is that overthinking it? No, that's a huge problem. So that's a great point, Tim. I mean, aside from data minimization, another key component of most data protection regulations is consent, right? So being able to get consent from the user to uh, collect the data, store the data, specific processes, uh, perform specific processes, and also share with third parties if need be. And there's also in the GDPR, for example, a limited amount of time during which you can keep the data. So only keep it for as long as you actually need it. And if you're not keeping track of that, that's automatic uh, not compliance with the GDPR because you're not gonna know when to delete the data, when to, uh, what kind of processes you can, you can use the data for, even if you can store it. It's pretty common, for example, to keep track of who accepted which cookies in, with their IP address, right? Which in some cases uh, can lead to a bit more loss of privacy because you know that that IP address visited your website. <laughs> so a little conflicting there, um, but it is important to keep track of who consented to what uh, but then there is the clause that if the data is de-identified in certain data protection under certain data protection regulations, and then they list what kind of information uh, would be required to be removed in order for data to be identified, de-identified, um, then you can use that in processes without consent. And part of the purpose of that those clauses being there, data protection regulations, is to encourage the companies to make the data more private. So in the end, while like the identification might not be 100%, it still protects the customers much more than if the if the company just completely ignored the fact that they're collecting personal and viable information. So th th this is not connecting with another stream of kind of my personal passion and a trend we're seeing a lot is on the on semantic layers, and it. It, I'm realizing that when you start defining a semantic layer of what things mean, right? Oh, so I have a users and the users can do these things and they have, there's these usages, these activities. Like we need to start expanding that semantic layer to also either, I don't know, first class citizen or second class citizen include these types of aspects about what is going on, right? So a user, so you would think that, like, imagine the, the semantics of a, of a user goes on the app and does these types of, uh, has these activities. Well, I also need to go model inside of that semantic layer, possibly, I'm thinking is, well, how often did they, they're, they're acknowledging they can use the data for how long, right? For, so when I'm gonna go generate a data product about users, I'm gonna generate a data product about activities. <laughs> and then uh, somebody else is gonna go create metrics and they're gonna go create that metric. They're gonna know, well, I need to go combine users with their activities, but they know that ideally, if whenever the time went by, that activity of that user who said, you can only keep my data for a week or a month or whatever, should automatically disappear. 
And we should be aware of that. So then tomorrow when somebody who's making the consuming these data products says, oh, the, the, the amount of entries decreased, something is wrong with the data. Like, no, 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 that's actually what's expected to happen, right? Because we constantly delete these things. This is something, I mean, I've been having these conversations with a bunch of customers, prospects about it, and nobody's ever brought this up to me. I have never, I haven't been thinking about it. And, and now I'm realizing that this is something that we, that I'm questioning or asking myself, like, where do we put this information? Like, where do we put this knowledge? Is this knowledge part of the semantic layer? Is this knowledge part of the description of the, of, uh, of the data product? But we also want this stuff to be computable. I don't, I, like, I, I don't expect people like, uh, uh, somebody's doing an audit and every week or every day we're going to go update the database, update our data product. Like this should something be very continuous and automatic. So um, again, I'm, I'm ranting here, but I, 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 you got me excited about how, how again, I'm connecting my favorite trends, data products. Am I uh, sensing some excitement about privacy there? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm now realizing that we need to start. I, I'm now asking myself, where do we, where do we, I mean, you just said it. Privacy should be done from the beginning and you just, planted that seed in my head. I'm like, well, if I'm starting to find my models, my semantic models, my semantic layer, my ontologies, whatever, uh, that is going to define my business glossaries, right? Mm-hmm. Even that, like, what is a user? Like a user, ha- a user uh, we keep track of user and their activities. That activity can only stay for so long, so amount of time. Like, where do we actually document that? And I, I, I'm going to postulate that I don't think people document that. Some do. Uh, I guess a lot probably don't. But one way of getting around actually having to collect that information in the first place is to aggregate it with other users' data. And if you aggregate it with enough users' data and uh, it's not something very specific like a rare disease uh, and uh, whether or not a particular everybody with a rare disease is classified in one particular uh, way, um, there are ways to check whether privacy is preserved, whether that enough of a segment of a population uh, would be representative by the data that was collected and aggregated. Yep. So this is kind of going back to this concept that you mentioned a little bit ago about anonymization, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it are you aggregating the data in such a way that you can't identify a specific individual. Now, all of a sudden, you can use this data in a um, in a more broad way, where you don't have to be as careful or as specific about the usage of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what other techniques, uh, in addition to like aggregation, might we associate with anonymization? Yeah, good question. So, it depends on whether you're thinking about structured data or unstructured data. If we look at structured data, which is where the vast majority of efforts around anonymization have gone, um, you'd generally be bucketing the data and then uh, calculating different scores, like how many how many people uh, how many entries uh, could be associated with you know, enough individuals. So what you're taking is uh, Things like age, for example, and blowing it up, like uh, you're 25 and it becomes uh, 20 to 30. And then this data gets grouped with other information from people who are 20 to 30. And then you see, okay, how many entries have this common thing? And the point there is to be able to make generalizations about a population. Similar to differential privacy, where the point is to be able to make generalizations about a population. Now, anonymization gets a lot of slack. And one of the reasons is there are so many headlines that say anonymization does not work. Uh, And this drives me absolutely up the wall because it's often, um, actually I've never seen one that's that's, uh, applied to true anonymization. You'd have people include certain names. You'd have people include dates of birth. You'd have people include zip codes. These do not qualify as anonymization. So what needs to happen is have that, you really need to include that re-identification risk scoring uh, when you're doing this uh, aggregation. Mm. All right. Yeah, no, no, this, 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 okay. This is a, this is an interesting path right here. Tim, you wanted to follow up or? 
I think the, the one other quick follow up just before we move off of this topic is like, you know, what do you think about things like masking or tokenization or things like that? Are those part of an anonymization strategy or are they potentially more part of differential privacy? Like w- what is differential privacy for some of the people listening who don't know too much about that? Maybe even some more definitions would be useful here. Okay. Uh, all right. So I'll start from the beginning. So anonymization, um, the idea behind anonymization is that there is no way that you could link the original data to the, the person whose data it is. Um, under HIPAA, which is, I think, the only regulation that actually, that puts forward a claim of what the re-identification risk threshold should be, uh, you, you should have a re-identification risk uh, of 0.04%. Um, if you're thinking of tokenization, a lot of the times those tokens uh, are associated with the original data in some sort of database, so you can re-create re, uh, the original data. That's what under the GDPR is called pseudonymization. And what differential privacy is, is adding noise, some random noise from a Laplacian distribution, for example, uh, to, in some cases, the results of a query. So you could picture having a database of uh, people uh, who uh, smoke, have cancer, and some of them, or maybe one of them has a rare disease. And you want to query that database uh, to see how many, to make a generalization about a population. Is it the case that smoking causes cancer? But you, and you want people to be able to get the result of that um, in a way that's significant, that is actually useful for them. But you don't want them to be able to query the database and say, is there somebody with a rare disease who smokes and has cancer? Because then you can re-identify the person if you happen to know they're in the study and you can find out whether or not they have cancer. Uh, So what the result, you might get a result uh, from that query that would have noise added to it. So you get maybe a two or a zero or a three. Maybe you'd get a one. Um, And the idea there is that because there's noise added to it, you don't actually know what the real result was. So you can... Um, calculate a mathematical guarantee of privacy based on an an idea of how much data is available for particular variables. This was a very nice description of this. I think I think hopefully I'm, I'm, this is a a, a a recording that we should be able to go back to for that very nice definition of differential privacy. So thanks for that. Yeah. Oh, this is very helpful. I think I think a lot of our of our listeners are very interested in sort of like this side of the world because it's like, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about I got to get my data from A to B and I got to model it in a way I can do some great analytics on top of. But then, you know, what about, you know, are we respecting the consent? Are we are we anonymizing where appropriate? Uh, in many cases, we may not be. And then, you know, Six months later, legal reaches out to you and gives you a slap on the wrist and says, no, 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 you're not supposed to be doing that. Put that data back in that pot where you found it, right? Um, and so it's it's uh, it's good for us to unlock and open more information about this. And, and I think, Patricia, you're, you're, you're providing some great some great context here around around some of these different elements and how they fit together. Um, and I think maybe one more element to this picture which uh, I know Juan and I were kind of interested in is this concept of sensitive data. Mm-hmm. Like what makes data sensitive? And, you know, is that something that's important for people to identify? You know, like we talked about like consents and we talked about anonymization. Like are people supposed to be like keeping track of all the places where sensitive data lives? Is that a regulatory thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and to add to that, what is sensitive data how do we define sensitive data and is there an, an an exact definition or is that also kind of extends to it depends on uh, industry scenario use case or whatever good question and i think it depends on the regulation and if you look at the gdpr for example sensitive data are things like religion 
or sexual orientation when they're associated to an individual. And it can be something that an individual can be discriminated upon in that case. Uh, also something that's not necessarily easy to change. It's unlikely that you're going to change your sexual orientation too many times in your life, but who knows. Um, it's not considered, so something like an address is not considered sensitive information. And I think there's still a debate around what should or should not be considered sensitive information. So that's yeah, when you that. should really be reading your, your privacy policies to know how they're considered, uh, what sensitive data is, how it's being defined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does the company that you're talking to consider things like IP addresses to be sensitive or not? Does it consider, you know, like, how is it looking at your information? I feel like a lot of times actually privacy policies don't go into that much detail. There's a little bit of like the fuzziness behind the curtain. Yeah. But this isn't to be confused with personally identifiable information. Right? Mm -hmm. So when you are identifying uh, data, you are considering personally identifiable information. And those can include direct identifiers like your address, like your full name, your social security number, but also quasi-identifiers uh, where when you combine them together, it increases the risk of re-identifying you to an exponential level. Uh, so those are things like origin or religion or uh, physical attributes, things like that. Okay, that see that's a that's a really good distinction. I, th I see Juan's kind of uh, uh, brain chugging on this as well, where a piece of data may be sensitive in and of itself. Like for example, a social security number, for example, is probably thought of as sensitive, right? Now, something like an address, like you mentioned earlier, right? Or something like a, um, you know, an IP address is another example, right? Those things aren't necessarily sensitive in and of themselves. Although to your point, there's a debate around that, but certainly in combination with other things, now you can start to identify somebody. Correct. But not all PII is sensitive data. Not all PII is sensitive. And not all direct identifiers count as sensitive data. So is a social security number? Is a I don't think so. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not sure. Maybe under certain regulations. Yeah, this is different. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Like in the, in the U.S., right, we have sensitive, I mean, as everybody in the U.S. will know, like your set, your your social security number is something you shouldn't share, but the last four digits show up everywhere, right? People will know that yeah. stuff, right? Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm half Colombian. I have a I have Colombian passport. I'm a U.S. passport, a Colombian passport. Colombian, you have your 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 national ID, mm -hmm. and that number you give it everywhere. You show it everywhere. Like you 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 sign up to a place to you're waiting in line and like what's your name and what's your ID number? Like this is a number that everybody is all over the place, right? That's that's not private. Everybody has it. Um so so yeah, I mean, I mean just just share kind of a couple things here from 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 my context, but that's interesting that in our PI is sensitive, you would think so, but now I'm connecting dots also in my yeah. personal life. So Here's, here's the list of what is considered sensitive under the GDPR. Personal data revealing racial or ethnic origin, political opinions, religious or philosophical beliefs, trade union membership, genetic data, biometric data processed solely to identify a human being, health-related data, data concerning a person's sex life or sexual orientation. That's what it is. That is... This, this is really important because even I... Mess up here. I'm right? surprised. I'm so surprised. I can't. I, I, right? Because I because I, 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 I always say like, oh, social security number. That's that's got to be sensitive. Email address. That's sensitive, right? But like the truth is, is that sensitivity is actually something more specific. And a lot of times when people are sort of loosely saying uh, sensitive data, what they really mean is PII, or I think even PI is more sort of the 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 term folks are trying to use these days, right? Right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so. PHI, which is personal health information. Protected health information. Protected health information. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Is that considered sensitive data? Um, well, well based on the definition you gave, I think it would be. So it's health-related data. So, mm -hmm. so protected health information might be. Um, maybe not things that would count it as PHI, but not sensitive. Like, uh, I don't, I don't think that your healthcare number, for example, or Medicare number would count as sensitive data under that list. 
Okay. But I could be wrong. Sense, yeah. Well, I, I, I see this also, and I kind of tying it to, to, to the catalog part, right, of our discussion and metadata management. Like, I think this is something that we always think about is, oh, well, I, I'm, I'm cataloging. I want to know I want to know what data I have, right? Mm-hmm. And I also know, want to know where all the sensitive data is, right? And then every – so should we then be, when we think about this from a cataloging perspective, should we be more – take a conservative approach and saying, you know what, even though we're in our discussion, we're saying, well, technically a uh, social security number or, 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 the, or your IP address, like that's not sensitive data, but let's just tag everything as sensitive data just to be safe. And let's take that very conservative approach. Or should we um, be more, I don't know, I guess more, 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 more liberal or whatever. Like what, what's your thought about that? Or, or is it, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say it depends on the use case, um, and it depends what you want to. Yeah, it depends what you want to do with the data. So here's an example. Uh, you might need a call transcript to be PCI compliant, so payment card um, information related, and that does include your social security number. That does include your credit card number, uh, and you might be wanting to send that data to another team to do processing. Right? So you have to remove that PCI information. Right? So I think there are other terms to address that problem. Uh, it, but it's more of a definitional. Okay, so so, so then this is from a catalog perspective, when people are thinking about cataloging, like, and they say, well, do you do sensitive data uh, detection, right? Mm-hmm. I think we should like, be, be more, get more specific. It's like, well, what do you, what do you mean by sensitive data? Do you mean, are you meaning PII data? Are you meaning, uh, uh, I mean, PHI data? Uh, or, I mean, or is it, let's actually just not call it just sensitive. You mean religious data, political data, right? All, yeah, all what does sensitive data. mean to you and the regulations you're trying to abide exactly. by, et cetera, right? Exactly, yeah. So what we do at Private AI, for example, is, is really look at these regulations count these direct identifiers as quasi-identifiers as personally identifiable information. So... Just put in, for example, you want to comply with the GDPR as an option, and it gets taken care of in the back end. Um, I think that for the case of sensitive data, it gets a lot trickier because it has to be associated to a particular individual. So if you said under that list, uh, that, that definition in the GDPR, you said, I want to remove all religions, uh, all healthcare information, anything related there, that's absolutely fine. But if you're trying and, and you could achieve that removal of sensitive data, but if you wanted to leave in any religions that were mentioned that weren't associated to a particular individual, that gets trickier. So maybe you want to be more, you also need to ask your customer how cautious they want to be. Do they want to remove all related data or not? All right. So I think this is this is this is a great point. So for our listeners, we're like, we're thinking about how do we, how we're managing all our data and creating data catalogs. And we're like, people like a checklist, go manage sensitive data. Like you should also be thinking about more specifically, what do you mean by sensitive data? And mm-hmm. don't don't just I mean, yeah, vendors out there are going to like be prescriptive about it. But also you need to know what you mean by sensitive data, too. So actually, just very quickly, I see here Sarah on the on, on the chat on LinkedIn is saying, wouldn't PHI be covered by a HIPAA? Just to kind of wouldn't PHI be covered by HIPAA? Yes, it would be covered by HIPAA. OK. All right. Got that answer there. So. Um, <laughs> Time's flying by. There's some couple more things I want to go touch on. One is, let's talk about like the good, the good, bad, and ugly examples of privacy, right? Because what are examples of privacy done right and done and done wrong? And, and, and mm-hmm. how do you balance this whole privacy and customer experience? I mean, if you, I'd love if you can share a couple examples of the good, bad, and ugly. Sure. Um, okay. So, example of ugly. Uh, there's this Korean company called Scatterlab uh, that had been gloating about the billions of conversations that they had between lovers uh, that they were using to train their chatbot, their love bot on. And next thing you know, they were spewing out names, usernames, addresses, full-on exact addresses of the people who had been using this conversational app uh, into production, into other conversations. That was a pretty big scandal. So that's very ugly. Now, 
the interesting part is that that points out something that academia is actually only starting to um, learn about. So it was only maybe in 2019 or so, maybe a little, maybe one or two years earlier, but around that time that uh, this concept of uh, machine learning or, or neural language models memorizing sensitive data that it found um, as and, and that it became an apparent problem. So there's this paper called The Secret Chair by Carlini et al. That's pretty foundational to this, where they hid a social security or a random number, sorry, a random number within the database they were training their model in, with. And even though this random number appeared very seldom, the model was still shown to memorize it by the amount of surprise that it showed whenever it showed a digit or whenever a digit was chosen uh, to come after. Um, yeah, that, that's a thing about how language models work. But the point is, uh, this is pretty new in academia and is starting to trickle into industry as well. Um, and we could see it from scan a scandal like Scatterlab. Uh, there are companies out there that are paying attention to this, who train chatbots or who work in uh, language processing in some other way, like sentiment analysis or topic modeling, who are aware of this and don't want their data to be memorized. So um, a lot of the people that we speak to are very aware of this problem. And then the way that they deal with it is generally by removing the personal information and then replacing it with fake information um, in order to prevent the model from memorizing that data. That's interesting. I mean, that's, there's obviously a lot more neural network and deep learning type applications, and there are obvious hazards to that when it comes to privacy and security, both, right? And, uh, and so this is obviously a, a powerful technique for that. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that, that's, that's the ugly, huh? <laughs> that's the ugly. Any, um, any good or bad ones? Any good or bad ones? Let's see. So, I mean, I guess Facebook is another ugly one. Any good ones? <laughs> Let's be positive. Let's be positive. You brought up, for example, Duck, yeah, Duck, so, um, we we interviewed the who was the DPO of um, Twilio uh, a few months ago, and she talked about how they integrated uh, this whole privacy by design concept within Twilio, um, and how from the way that they did that was by giving agency to the people from the very bottom all the way to the top to question whether they were doing the right thing uh, for with their customers data and thanks to that and thanks to making sure that the they were aware of which processes are gdpr compliant which ones aren't um, and really empowering the individuals they were able to make the transition to gdpr compliance in a fairly smooth way and she's an amazing human being. You should uh, look up Sheila Jambakar. All right. And I think this is one of the big takeaways that I'm having here is this whole, uh, you just said privacy by design, uh, but also, yeah, privacy should be done from the beginning. I think this is something that we're not really thinking about. Um, just quickly here, uh, Sarah asked again, what is the name of the paper? I'm actually, I was taking notes here. I missed it too. Oh, The Secret Share. The Secret Share. Yeah. There, there's a bit more to the title, but if you just look up the secret chair Carlini, uh, you should find it. All right. And there's a more recent paper uh, by the same um, uh, author uh, on um, how GPT-2 memorizes. Got it. So the secret share evaluated and testing unintended memorization in neural networks. Cool. That's the one. Yeah. That's it. Well, Time flies. Look, we can keep talking. I got a bunch more stuff I want to like. I want to be able to go chat with you, but it's uh, time to uh, go to our lightning round. So um, let's move on to our lightning round, which is uh, hey, thanks to Data.World. Let's just do this every Wednesday. So I'm going to go first. Um, can privacy be black and white, or is it like shades of gray? Shades of gray. All right, that's what I thought. Wanted to confirm. <laughs> the semantics, right? Um, all right, second lightning round question for you. Uh, for data people at companies trying to wrap their head around 
their own company's privacy. Um, should they start by understanding their own company's privacy policy? Or is there a better tactic? Mm. Um, I'd say start by understanding uh, what privacy means and then look at your company's privacy policy. Well, I think the answer there is to listen to this podcast again to make sure that you got what privacy means. So, all right. So next question, will privacy become cool and sexy in the next few years or is it already? Mm, I don't think it's cool and sexy yet, but I think it's getting there. I think you gave some good ideas for how it can become cooler and sexier, both for end users as well as for companies. So some good ideas in our podcast today. And all right, last lightning round question for you. Will privacy ever become a given, aka privacy first is accomplished everywhere? Oh, that is the, that's the dream, Tim. Uh, will it ever happen? I think we're setting ourselves up to, I know this is a lightning round, <laughs> but that is a Let deep. Go, a go, deep go. I want to hear that. Um, okay, I'll, I'll say yes. Yes, we are in a very uh, interesting time um, because we've got the technologies uh, that can help and that are continuously being developed. We've got great people working on uh, privacy and we've got the regulatory compliance aspect that is pushing us forward. Right, I love that answer. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat. I'm going to add a f question 4B, which is that how, how critical is regulation, do you think, to accelerate that future? So critical. So critical. And this is really cool. Um, most of the time, regulation is being criticized for being behind technology. But if you look at the GDPR, it actually triggered the creation of a bunch of technology in order for companies to be able to comply with it. I think that's an important take, right? Like sometimes we think that regulation always is a killer of innovation when in many cases, or at least some cases, it can be the creator of a lot of innovation. Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, I mean, if you think about it, I, I think that's kind of the reason why patents are right. Patents was like, well, here's this, here is this kind of wall or fence around me about my stuff. And if you want to accomplish that, you're now forced to go figure out another way of doing that and to be innovative. I mean, that originally is kind of like, why we want to have patents, but we, okay, we had to have another conversation about patents. But anyways, uh, our, our sorry, go ahead. Like clean energy, for example. Yeah, there you go. All right, TTT Tim, take us away with your takeaways first. Patricia, you took us through a lot of really good information today, and I feel like I am a lot leveled up and smarter on privacy and security now. So appreciate it. Um, some things that were big takeaways for me are you mentioned that privacy is about giving control over information to the user and that security is really about keeping things safe, right? Is that information being properly sort of managed from, from various threats, right? Um, and without security, you can't have privacy. So these things have an important relationship to each other in order to be done well. Um, and, uh, that there's this, in general, a misconception about privacy, that folks think that people don't care, and maybe that's really more associated with how boring we make it, and how, you know, there's these, uh, you know, 45-page long or 100-page long privacy policies and things like that. So, you know, give them an option, give them good design, give them engagement, especially from companies, and they'll want privacy. Um, and two companies that are held the same, one that's more private, the private one wins, which goes into competitive advantage, right? And you mentioned, for example, like DuckDuckGo as an example of a company that's doing something unique here and that companies have an opportunity to use privacy as an advantage and even do things like market how they do their privacy, the unique technology that they're using, maybe even things like private AI that can actually make that better, right? Uh, and then you talked about like different types of privacy, data minimization uh, being sort of a, an important technique uh, around privacy uh, and, and sort of a consideration, uh, right to consent, uh, right to be forgotten, 
um, and also talked about the different threats to privacy, things like the company seeing the information, third party being able to see it, it being misused and it being stored for too long. And obviously there's a lot more, but I think that's a great taste for our listeners on, on some of the different aspects of privacy. Um, and Juan, what were, what were your key takeaways? I'm going to center on two. One is the data products. I think, well, first of all, the, the, this whole privacy should be done from the beginning. And I think that's a mindset that we need to start thinking about, especially now with the big trend of data products and, and data mesh and all that stuff. Like we really need to start thinking about privacy from the beginning. Um, so for example, if we're keeping track of consent, right, where is that being kept and how do you know that that is being related to your data product? And, and then I ask, I'm asking myself now, like this is my personal kind of question here is, when we start thinking about our semantic layers that we see that that's now another very popular trend that we're seeing. How is that semantic, how is consent and privacy connected to the semantic layer about just what, what things mean with an organization? So that's one of the, one of the big uh, takeaways. And second, a huge takeaway here is about sensitive data. Like I, I'm, I'm just even blown away with what sensitive data is. Like I now know not all PII is sensitive data. Uh, depends on regulations, right? The religion, the political trade union, uh, health, all that type of stuff. Uh, all of PHI is probably sensitive data, which makes me really think about. And also when I talk to customers and prospects, I'm going to like, and if they're going to bring up sensitive data, I'm now going to go ask them say, what do you mean by sensitive data? I mean, I can give you our definition of sensitive data, which means that we should all have our definition definition of sensitive data. But I think that's a, that's the critical thing. You, be, you need to be able to understand what we mean. I think that is super, super important. Um, Patricia, how did we do? How did we summarize our takeaways? Anything we missed? I think that was great. And uh, this was super energizing. Thanks to both of you. Well, so let's throw it back to you. Two final questions. One, what's your advice about data, about life, whatever? And second, who should you invite next? Okay. Advice. Okay. So this is a piece of advice that I share um, as much as possible, which I read on the bathroom stall of my undergrad university. <laughs> 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 and it, was, it is a life-changing piece of advice to read on a bathroom stall. And it's that you treat people how to treat you. Uh, sorry, you teach people how to treat you. Which, you know, should be obvious, but isn't. Teach and people how to treat you. Yeah, you teach, teach people how to treat you. How to teach you. Yeah. I like that. I like it. That. That's, that's, sorry, that seems to be like a book you should buy. Uh, <laughs> advice from the bathroom stall. <laughs> <laughs> I would read that. I'd buy that. It's a coffee table book right there. <laughs> That, that sounds like a great year going around different bathroom stalls, probably in sketchy places too, to see because they have more graffiti. Hey, I mean, it, it is advice. Nobody's saying it's good advice, right? It's just yeah. advice. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure there would be a lot of don't date these kind of people. <laughs> this is dangerous. All right. Yeah, we're getting, I'm thinking about this, but I don't think I should want to, I don't want to get anyways. All right, back to you, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> and who should you invite next? Oh, there are so many people. Um, so I'm a big fan of Karina Sabani, for example. Uh, she's, I think she was director of machine learning research at um, a, a VC fund here in Toronto. Um, really brilliant woman. She knows a lot about data. Awesome. We will, we will. Definitely be reaching out and we'll ask people to, if you can connect us. Absolutely. Patricia, thank you so much. This was, the, we, we I, I started off like, what is privacy? What is security? And now I'm like, wow, we need to really start doing this inside of our, our, our thinking, even on our product and stuff like that. So thank you. Thank you so much. This was a great discussion. Uh, next week, we have Shane Gibson from Agile Data. And just a uh, fun thing, Shane actually, I think was one of our first listeners like he would actually join our original zoom calls when we were doing catalog and cocktails almost two years ago and during zoom so he's uh, in new zealand so when we're doing this at wednesday 4 p.m it's going to be the future for him right it's going to be thursday at 10 a.m uh we're talking about what does it mean to be agile with data and hey if you're coming to austin for south by southwest or the data council let us know find on Juan Cicada on twitter uh, and tim gasper on twitter uh, you can find us on social media and you can find us. Let us know because we'd love to go meet with all you. Patricia, thank you so much. And thanks thank to Data Art World always for supporting Catalan Cocktails. Thank you. Have a great one. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers. Patricia.
Had a lot of fun. This is Catalog and Cocktails. A special thanks to Data.World for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Catalog and Cocktails fan base.